Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joe Wanasek and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me is my co-host, Joe Wanasek. Joey Sturgis is on a trip, so uh, we tip our drinks to him for all our fallen homies. He'll be back soon, though. And with us is an amazing guest, Mr. Dan Malsh, who Joel seems to know very, very well. If you don't know who Dan is, Dan founded the Sound Mind Academy in 2014, uh, which he offers in-person lessons on tracking, mixing, mastering. He's also worked with a ton of awesome bands like Framing Hanley, Motionless and White, Bury Your Dead, Forever the Sickest Kids, The Killing Floor, all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, apparently he's got more gear than anyone I've ever met in my life. According to, <laughs> according to Joel. Maybe not as much as Ocean Way, but man, yeah. when I was yeah. there, Dan and I worked on a project back in like, what, 2010 or 12? Yeah, or? yeah, it was a while back. I'm bad with dates, but yes. It was a great time. And we went out there, like I had done the, it was like an electronic dance. It was like a crossover between like, I would call it Andrew WK meets club rock. Yeah. Or like, you know, like the club. So we went out there and I remember walking in Dan's room and he's got like the full SSL, the freaking 24 inch tape machine. All of it still works. And he doesn't even have a damn tech, which is crazy too. He's got like 50 channels of Neve 1084, uh, racks of AP, just every piece of gear. And then there's that piece of shit summit compressor yeah. that he's got. But <laughs> that's why I have a shitty car. Cause I get all this gear. <laughs> So aren't you doing a new studio, Dan? Because I've been following you on Facebook and it looks like you've got a whole new build that you've been doing and it looks incredible. So what's up? Yeah, so probably about a little over three years ago, my wife just, you know, called me out of the blue and said, you know, I'm going to go look at this buildings for sale because there was this old resort that had closed down and they had a bunch of different buildings and stuff. And she went and looked at this building and it was for sale and it was just this, you know, incredible it's a large building. It's got, you know, nothing around it, but it's really close to everything. So my studio right now has nothing around it, but it's, you know, 10 miles away from everything. So this one, <laughs> yeah, Definitely. You know, yeah, right. So this one is, this one has, it's on its own five acres. You pull into a gate and, uh, but you know, you go out and you, a bar is right around the corner. You could, you know, walk to places, five minutes, you to everything. So I want to be a little closer to the stuff. And I tried to do a build out on this studio that I'm in now, which is large. I, I've been here for 16 years. It's a large studio if Joel's been here, but I'm, you know, I'm always, you know, bigger, better as studios are getting smaller. You know, my crazy mind wants to make a studio bigger, which I have <laughs> kind of no idea why. Uh, but just because. I, yeah, Rock just it. because. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't drive fancy cars. I don't have nice stuff. I just have a lot of gear and a nice studio. So, but this building was amazing. I mean, it's 11,000 square feet. Jesus. The one, yeah. Wow. The one that I'm in now, it's two. So I started out, I was going to do a bunch of different rooms. And then, you know, really at this point, I'm trying to kind of scale back what the projects that I bring into the studio. 10,000 square foot live room? No, no, I wish. <laughs> no. You mean cave? Yeah. 
So what I did is I, I basically I separated the building. We actually put our new ho- home in the building because I wanted it to be originally, and this is a long-winded story, I was going to have both studios. I have houses up here, but I've just kind of, I want to consolidate everything. So eventually we're going to sell the buildings that I'm in now. We put our new home right next to the studio in the new at the new location, but the studios, you know, it's it's got a really large control room as I wanted because you know we spend most of our time in the control room. It's got uh, a really large live room, and then it's got like six isolation spaces. It's got a big isolation room for my piano, which I really wanted. And it's got a couple other isolation rooms in the live room, and then located down below, it has like four different uh, isolation rooms for amps and guitars and stuff. And then, so I'm going to have two studios, an A and a B room, kind of how I do here. And then we give classes, so I'm going to have some classrooms in it. That that sounds insanely awesome. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a ton of work. I mean, it's been three years of basically spending every dime I have and a lot of, you know, a lot of stress because trying to work on projects and building a new studio has been... Yeah, because this studio is really busy all the time, so it's not like I'm sitting around waiting. You know, it's 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 balancing a ton of things. So these past three years have been definitely super difficult, but got a beautiful studio coming along. Didn't you start the teaching thing within the past three years? Yeah, we did that too, which was kind of crazy. We, you know, as everyone knows, budgets has have really taken a hit. I mean. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little old enough to know, you know, I've done some records in the mid nineties and early two thousands where budgets were really, you know, Big. not great, but much bigger than they are now. You know, you take a band like Tantric that I did, their first budget was three or four times bigger than the budget that I worked on their last record on. So I didn't want to have to take a lot of projects that I really didn't want to work on. So I said, well, what can I do? I started giving some classes to bring some income in, but it turned out that I really liked teaching. I didn't think I would because you know, I was never really good in school. I didn't uh, like classes at all, but I think how I teach is really hands-on. Not a lot of books, not a lot of studying. It's just we're constantly playing with gear. We're working on different projects that come into the studio. So I really like teaching. So it's able, it's, it's what it's done is it's, made me be able to say no to certain projects that I don't want to do. Not that they might not be good projects, just something that maybe I'm not really good at or, you know, just not, don't really think that I could do a lot with the project. So yeah, it's been pretty good, the school. And it's kind of like these days, while the budgets are shrinking, the amount of people who are getting into recording, well, that, that number is exploding. Yeah, it's huge. So that's in... In my experience, that's a great move that you made. So I've got a quote from Einstein here, which is that uh, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't know it well enough. And just wondering, right. do you find that teaching audio engineering has helped you develop deeper understanding of engineering? You know, it's, it really has. Because as as I teach things and I explain things, I'm like, wow, you know, that helps me. Because what I try to teach people is, how everything works exactly. So if something's not working, you know where to look. You don't just kind of guess why it's working. I teach people from, you know, beginning to end signal chain, why this EQ does this, why this compressor does this, every different way it could possibly work. But it's definitely from teaching without a question has has really <laughs> brought my skills up to know really, because sometimes I'll question, well, you know, I know how to do that, but why exactly am I doing that? 
you know, technically, why am I doing that? Because, you know, we all been doing this a long time, so we just grab and do it. But when you when you show someone what you're actually doing, it's like, hmm, you know, it makes sense. So you've, your course, Introduction to Audio Recording, it's 10 weeks long. Yes. And uh, you go over all kinds of stuff, DAWs, mic placements, routing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it for anyone listening who might be interested? Sure. I mean, I think one of the um, good points about coming here is we have a ton of gear. So, you know, a lot of people have, you know, a lot of gear envy, like, oh, I don't have this, you know, $6,000, you know, Neve preamp, so I can't make this sound like this. So even though I have a lot of gear, I'm not really a gear snob at all. I mean, I'll record on anything. I believe you can make pretty much anything these days sound good. So I think I'll go through Neve, different with Neve mic pre's, API mic pre's, Wonder mic pre's. And the difference is a lot of times what I show these kids is very subtle. I mean, does it sound, is there a huge difference between a $1,000 mic pre to an $8,000 mic pre? Not really. You know, it's kind of like a, kind of like a fancy car, you know, a collector's car. They both go just as fast. So I think one of the strong points about what I do is, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm 44 now. So I came up and tape, get having to get the takes right, can't punch and fix every little thing. So I come from a, a kind of an old school way of setting things out and setting up sessions. But of course, now these days you have to, you know, move at a certain speed and you have to know all the latest commands and plugins and mixing techniques. But I think what I do is I tr- I really teach people how to get things right at the source, like even tuning drums, making sure phasing is right in your drum kit, making sure everything is correct before you, you know, press record. It's down to showing people how to intonate their guitars, how to set everything up before you record. And then we go through, I show guys like, here's this, you know, like I said, here's this, you know, hugely expensive mic pre, okay? Here's this hugely expensive mic. We, we do some recording with that, but then we go to something that's a little more modest that most people record. And honestly, you guys all know, it's not that different. I mean, maybe you have to boost the low end a little, maybe you have to do something with the top end, but kind of what I preach to kids because, and then what a lot of times I've been doing lately is helping kids set up their system, you know, because people are like, well, I can't afford this. I can't afford that. You really don't need a ton of stuff. So Kind of that's what I do is I go through everything from soup to nuts, setting up sessions from the beginning. I think that that's super important also because if someone doesn't have a crazy amount of gear, yeah, uh, they can really hold themselves back by thinking that they need it. And yeah. then also, if they don't have a ton of gear, in all likelihood, they're going to end up going to different studios to do different things. Like yeah. say someone just has a small project studio or a mixing room, they're clearly going to go to another studio to track drums and uh, move around local studios probably. And it helps to know exactly what does what and just how much of a difference it makes or doesn't make. And if you have all the basics nailed, like how to get great source tones, you can make things work anywhere you go. I think I really want to touch on a point here that, that I know we've said many times on this podcast, and I feel like it's just never ending. You know, you can keep reiterating it over and over, and it just never becomes less important. And that is 
and which is basically what you've just said, Dan, the importance of fundamentals in recording, mixing, producing, etc. Everybody always glosses over the fundamentals. They always want to do complicated instead of simplistic things, techniques, etc. They always want the more complicated exp- explanation. It's not, oh, I just EQ'd it and used balance. That's not good enough. They're like, well, what parallel process? And did you use right. saturation? And you right. know, they want all the fancy stuff. And that was actually something I think I learned from you watching you mix because that was like the first experience I had in a room with somebody on a console. Right. And I remember listening to the bass sound coming off the board. I was like, dude, that bass sounds sick. What's your yeah. bass change? And you just turned around and you looked at me and you're like, oh, dude, it's just EQ right into the board. I'm like, are you fucking yeah. kidding? Yeah. I'm like, no. And you're like, yeah, that. And I got it high past at 85. And I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go turn off all 40 of my bass yeah. plugins when I go home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's, it really is like that though, Joel. Cause you know, like you get, you, your mixer, so you, so you get a lot of sessions sent to you. And some of the stuff I get sent to me, I'm like, whoa. And what I end up doing is <laughs> basically strip every, everything down to almost nothing. You know, there'll be like 78 plugins on one thing. And, and don't get me wrong. <laughs> I do, I do that sometimes, you know, you know, I'm searching, 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 but if I record it myself, you know, or if it's mixed properly, simpler is almost always better. I mean, right? I mean, it's kind of like out of 10 times, yeah. Yeah, you keep putting more and more and more stuff on and more stuff and like, wow. I I mean, I think if people look at my my mixes, they're like, well, what did you do? I'm like, not that much, you know? It's like leveling and kind of using your ear to put stuff in the in the right space. I mean, I, that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of tricks to fix the stuff. I always like people say like, I, I would rather mix than fix, you know, like fix everything that, <laughs> you know, that's the fundamentals that come in. I mean, if I record a record, I'm then I'm saying, you know, it's, I will try to get everything. So when I'm mixing, I'm basically just setting some levels. I mostly filter a lot of stuff. I mostly take away a lot of stuff. And, you know, and create that space. People, a lot of people just pile on, pile on, pile on. And it's like, it's not that much room in a recording. You know, you just can't have this huge bass and then a huge bass guitar, huge bass drum. And, you know, and I struggle a little bit not to go off on a tangent. Like I get some stuff sent to me. I just got some Fetty Wap stuff sent to me to mix. And there is so much bottom on that. You know, it's just wow, crazy. So it's like usually end up really taking away, taking away, taking away. But you still have to make it sound absurd. But plus these days, you guys, you know, it's like, right. I mean, there's just so much everything, so much bottom, so much volume. I think getting things to sound absurd is more of a matter of getting the elements to work together, fit like a puzzle. Yeah. Than adding and adding and adding. Definitely. Yeah, because adding and adding is a mess, usually. Yeah, totally. There's this moment where when you cut the right stuff in the right places and you level things properly, where it's like it's like a Rubik's Cube almost gets unlocked, especially with low end. It's like once you fit those magic pieces together, suddenly your mix sounds absurd in a good way suddenly it has life and you don't get that by just boosting and boosting and boosting low end it's called mixing for a reason <laughs> yeah you can't just boost and boost low end damn you it. can't <laughs> uh, i've been doing it wrong <laughs> <laughs> you know as we get older we start doing this stuff more and more and more and more you know there's some producers I, i've worked with that i've learned a lot from and some guys where eh but there's been a couple guys that I really learned a lot with as far as tracking. One guy, I don't want to mention his name because I think he's a nut. And, uh, you know, but he's <laughs> he's done some shady stuff. <laughs> but 
I learned so much from this guy. He just, he tracks so simplistic. He gets all the parts just right. And he drills, he drills, he drills. I remember him saying to the drummer, because they were doing this kind of like Fleetwood Mac thing. And he kept saying, he said to the drummer, if you do that drum fill one more effing time, I'm going to come out there and kill you because he'd be like, I just want it simple. I just want it simple. But he would drill it and drill it. And it, it still had the feel. He wasn't taking the feel away, but he got, I mean, and then you just pulled up the faders and it was like, wow, it's amazing. You know? Absolutely. The threat of death. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a good it thing. It works, right? though. It works. I use it all I do the it. time. <laughs> yeah. I have a pizza shuttle application and a McDonald's <laughs> yeah. application I used I to keep on that. my wall. And I would just turn around when the guitar player can't play his shit and I point at it and then they just know. And then they go and shame and play the next take. And then the third time they hand me the guitar and I play it for them. Correct. Yes, exactly. You know, and another thing I wanted to bring up, and I don't, I don't, I don't you know, how to say this and not sound like a jerk, but like, you know, we can all fall into, I think, because we could fix so much stuff these days and we might be working on three or four projects at the same time. And a lot of times we do go, oh, you know, okay, I got to get this down. I'll fix it later. So I think we all do do that, but there's nothing, nothing like getting the take. It's just nothing like it, you know? And I think a lot of younger kids could really, you know, because I'm sure you guys have, you know, singers come in, don't worry about it. You know, I'll, I'll get it. I'll tune it. And you usually can, but you can't tune the feel. You can't tune. When a singer just gets on the mic and they're just killing it. It's just like, okay. You know, you almost, you almost try to do every, everything not to screw it up. I do want to throw in one, one thing that I, I do want people to keep in mind, which is really important. I a hundred percent believe in getting the performances in the source, of course. However, I feel like there one skill that a producer needs to have is that they need to be good at reading the situation and understanding who they're recording and understand when pushing them is not going to yield a result. Like maybe they don't have the talent or the skill to pull that off. And in which case, that's why you have all these tools to get out of that situation. Like there's some people who literally will not be able to do what you want them to do. Like it's not going to happen. Like they're not they're not good enough or it's not in their wheelhouse or you know whatever whatever it is maybe they're sick i don't know there's a million reasons but it's really important to also learn how to read the situation and know when the uh the source tones are not gonna be as great as they could be because reality is you have this person that's just not that great. I agree. You know, and, and there's always that moment, you know, some singers really want to be pushed. They want to be pushed and they don't mm -hmm. wake up. They don't wake up until you push them. So you're right about reading that. And some guys you push or girls and they just go into this cave and you, you'll never get it. Some guys, you, you know, you literally just have to have them do two, three takes down and you do have to fix everything because they're not punching. They're not going to punch in. They're not going to fix certain things. They're just going to kind of go with the moment. You know, like I work with an artist, Michael Graves, you know, who was the second uh, Misfit singer. Mm -hmm. Totally cool guy. This guy is, he's just all about vibe. He just wants to sing, 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 sing. And then he just says, okay, Dan, now you put it together. Not that, not that the takes are bad. They're all pretty good takes, but he doesn't want to sit there and work on this word or work on that word. He just wants to do, you know, maybe three or four, five or six takes. And, and that's it for him because it's all about, that's a punky thing. It's all about him getting in his head and getting it out, and that's it. And that's actually a great example of when it's not about 
of the person sucking. You know, maybe it's just the person wants to be in the moment when they're recording and by carving it together, I guess, or piecing it together, they will lose the moment. And, uh, you know, then you, again, you have this wide array of tools with which to conquer the situation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, everyone's different. So you're right about knowing, you know, and that's also, you know, every project is different, right? It's so different. So, you know, and even gear that we choose, I try to use different gear every time if I can, just because I get bored. You know, I'm not a guy who, okay, I need to use, you know, an LA-2A on this and that. I just get bored. So I just kind of set up whatever I look at first sometimes, you know, and if it sounds like crap, I'll usually change it. Like I, I have an SSL console here, a 4,000, and I spent, I don't know, five years pretty much never recording drums on the console because I'd be like, oh, you know, I have Neves and I have Wonders and I have APIs and stuff. But the past probably year, unless unless it's like a rootsy, like a real like big bottom, like bluesy something, I'll reach for the Neves. I've been using the SSL to record all my drums because there's such a smack and a snap on it. But I'd be, you know, I'd be like, oh, I can't use the SSL to record drums. <laughs> but Why I, not? I mean, yeah, I know, right? Well, because you know, back in the '80s and the '90s, that's all we used, and then everyone came out with, you know, all these unbelievable mic pre's for this, this, and that. So you'd be like, oh, I can't use the SSL anymore, right? It's supposed to be just a mixing console, basically. But there's nothing like the smack on those compressors. So yeah, I mean, I had this console sitting in front of me for five years or whatever it was, and I never, I never recorded drums on it ever which is kind of ridiculous. That's crazy. That's kind <laughs> Isn't of amazing, it? actually. It's really ridiculous. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I think, yeah, J- Joel said it. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I don't even own an SSL, and I feel like it's taboo to record anything on right? it, just from what you read. But there you go. I mean, stay off of gear sluts, guys, and actually use right. your ears and learn the tools and what they're good at yeah. and where you can use them effectively on your session as opposed to just listening to somebody else's pre-described opinion on it and say, oh, the SSL sucks for recording right well maybe it's brilliant for one project and it's absolute dog shit for the next right exactly like that's the thing you know and and i own the thing and i'm sitting here staring at it and you're right if i listen to something i'm gear so i'll be like oh my pre's on ssl suck i'm like oh shit do they suck you know like you know maybe they do sound like shit you know and then i then i recorded (laughs) and then i recorded drums that one time i'm like holy shit it sounds like the drummer is right next to me i mean that's literally what it sounds like it sounds like the glass is not there anymore, but the snap is just so, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that big cushy round thing like an, like a Neve does, you know, that bottom octavey thing, but sometimes that can be way too soft. So it's just something that when I recorded with the SSL, like it was almost like the glass was gone from the drum room to the control room. With all this gear and options, is there any piece of gear that's just like a standard like you must use it like a or 99 percent of the time there are some things that i'll pretty much grab a lot for snare drum i have a paltec 2bq and yeah it's without it it does something to like the 200 range of the snare drum where wherever i you know i'll insert it in the snare channel of the ssl to track and without it, it just always sounds thin. There's something when you boost the 100 hertz, because it's fixed at 100 hertz, you got 30, 60, and 100. 
I put it on 100 and I boost the low end. There's just something about that fatness. With the SSL, the combination of an SSL, I wasn't doing that when I was using the Neves, but with the SSL, there's something that gives it that, it's really, really thick. And pretty much always now for vocals, I'll be using my DW Firm Pre's. I'm not familiar with those. Oh, those are really expensive and really nice. Yeah, it's a tube pre. It's a company out of, uh, it's in, Pen- in Pennsylvania, Northeast PA, kind of outside of Philly. Uh, it's a pretty, you know, not super well known, but they're definitely, you know, high end. If you look at the box, it's crazy. Like, I don't even know how many tubes it has in it. But it's just, once again, it just takes like, it feels like the singer is right next to you. feels like there's nothing between the microphone and the singer. Now, for some things, you might not want that, you know, but if I want a really super transparent, but, you know, that tubey thing, so the bottom is kind of round and warm. Those are the kind of two pieces of gear that I always reach for. And, and most of the time, I'll use an 1176 for vocals compressor. I tend to to be pretty heavy handed on compression. I'm not one of those guys that will track with just a little bit of something. Like I'll pretty much get it how I want it to sound. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, if I fuck it up, uh, oh, sorry. Can you curse on this? Yeah. Oh yeah, you can. You can (laughs) fucking curse on this fucking Uh, podcast. Yeah. So if I fuck it up, I'm like, ah shit, you know, like if I'm hitting it a little hard, you know, and sometimes with the Neve preamps, there's that sweet spot where you click it up, you click it up, you click it up, you hear a little too much distortion and you click it back once. That's kind of the spot. But sometimes, you know, if you're using what I find, at least if I'm using a tube microphone, like I've been using a Flea 47 a lot lately. Sometimes if the singer starts hitting it a little too hard, we'll get, we'll get like this, you know, it's a nice distortion, but it sometimes it'll be like a little honky. That's the only danger if you're using uh, like a pretty loud tube microphone with the Neves because you kind of want to hit the Neves pretty hard and then click one back. But then if the singer starts laying into it, you know, you can kind of distort the pre's. But I try to do all that when I'm tracking, but it's a little more dangerous because you're not so safe that you have all this, you know, headroom that, you know, you basically can't fuck shit up. I like to kind of be on the edge of a lot of compression, a lot of everything. That's just my style. I mean, some people are no compression, no EQ, no nothing. I, I kind of just get it how I want it to sound and hopefully I don't mess it up. I feel like with analog gear though, that's where a lot of the magic happens. You yeah. know, when you push it sometimes into the red or you bury out the needle, like they all have a certain way they distort, yeah. bend and like just a certain tone that they impart. And, you know, even if I'm not compressing on, in the way in or aggressively or anything, I yeah. usually like to track through as much gear as I possibly can yeah. because I like the coloration yeah. that it gives. And I mean, a lot of the stuff I've got is pretty subtle. Like I got like the Shadow Hills, which is, is I, would, I would call it, a very yeah, it's very elegant. It, but but it definitely has a sound. But it's it's kind of on the transparent and elegant side. It's not like dirty and gritty, or, right? You know, um, I like that. I have like I track a lot through the massive passive EQ, which again is, is nice, fairly yeah. clean. But it just has a little bit of uh, there's just something about running through some tubes and some transformers that uh, when you're going into the computer. When it comes back out, it it never disappoints. You know, it's no. just it adds it makes it so much easier to mix, and it just adds a little bit of character and vibe that's really really hard to recreate digitally. Yeah, I mean, come, kind of my thing is like you know you're spending all this money for the gear, and you're right. Like 
You want something super transparent. It has transformers, so it just sounds big and open. But I tell people a lot of time, you know, we spend money on this gear. Let's hear it. You know, like, so instead of like, and I do, I tend to use a lot of compression. People a lot of time tell me I use too much compression, but I don't know. You know, I just kind of hear it. Like, they know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Just you can never use too much, right? I mean, so, you know, I'll, I'll tend to like, you know, cream it with the 1176 if I think it sounds good, you know? And then sometimes I'll cream it again with a plug-in. You know, it's like, I don't know. And one thing I'm just out of corner of my eye, I'm looking at some APIs out of the corner of my eye. And what I, I never realized how, do you have any API over there, Joel? I've got the uh, 5500 dual EQ, which is okay. like the rack version of the 500 series, but it's got the, um, trying to think how to describe it, like the switchable mid-band where you can control the octave. So you can make it more subtle and more like gentle instead of like a, you know, uh, the, the the Q width is more right. gradual. You can adjust that. And right. I've got your uh, standard 3124s. Oh, cool. Those are preamps, right? Yep. Love them. Four channel? Is that that one? Yeah, or? it's the four channel. Yeah. Only thing missing is uh, an output knob. Yeah. Dude, Dan's I, got like 32 of them motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> no output knobs, though, which is really annoying. Really annoying with APIs, isn't it? I mean, especially yes. a lot of music that we do, it's so loud. You know, it's like, I don't know why the, the Neve racks that I have in the Wonders, we actually put output pots on them. So, you know, we could we could cream the input and then lower the output. That's actually what I'm about to do is I'm about to. Yeah, you need to pads on the output so that I can drive them hard. Yeah, because you can't, you know, you're not really using. And then the pads on those, sometimes I don't like the sound as much if we pad them. Yes, it, it, right? it does something negative to the sound. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but I never seem to like it. What I was saying about the API, I never realized how thick the low mid was on them, like compared to something else. And a friend of mine has um, an Axe Effects, and he brought it to the studio because he had some really cool patches that he made, you know, like this kind of Metallica, like Black Album type of guitar tone he was going for. And I plugged it into the API, you know, out of the XFX into the API. And he's like, no, that doesn't sound like, you know, what I, what I have because it was adding so much low mid to it. Then I plugged it into the SSL and it was kind of pretty much what he wanted because, you know, it was just pretty transparent. So I never really realized, and I should have realized this, but, you know, I never really concentrated on how much like low mid thickness there was in the APIs. Really colorful. Yeah, definitely. They have a sound and, um, you know, some people love it. Well, I think almost everybody universally loves it, but uh, I'm sure there's some detractors, but they, yeah. they do a thing. I mean, well, I love, definitely. They definitely do a thing. I do love my EQ and I wish I kind of had a rack of them, but I don't really track that much anymore. So I don't need it because it's all mixing now. Are you mostly mixing now? Yeah, I've been for the last, I think like two or three years, almost exclusively. I mean, I've d tracked three days worth of stuff this entire year. Yeah, I would like to get to that point too. I mean, I, I definitely enjoy mixing a lot more. I think I might be semi-antisocial. <laughs> no, no. But I, I just like the tweaking, you know, I, I just like to being a, you know, like a scientist now more. But I, you know, I still track a lot because I have these nice tracking room, you know, and I like to track, don't get me wrong, but I, I like mixing much more. I think that's kind of where I would like to be eventually more. It's even more fun when I come and bring a project to you and you get yeah. to hang out with us. <laughs> yeah, man, but it sounds great. So you know, what do we do? We didn't even do much. You know, we just kind of, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's definitely. And I think some, some of the thing too, with my career is I never really specialized in, 
I mean, for me, if I could do, you know, big, heavy guitar music all the time, I think that would keep me happy. But from having the studio and having so many different producers in it all the time, I've gotten to mix a lot of different projects. So I don't think people think I specialize in anything, which is, I don't know if it's good or bad, but kind of got it, you know, got to mix. I mix everything from jazz here, which is definitely not my strong point, but I think I did a decent job to sing a songwriter to, I don't mix, you know, like a lot of super heavy stuff anymore. I wish I did. I tend to get more like modern rock stuff sent to me. Do you have any advice for people who are just starting to make a living at this, or maybe they've been making a living, but they feel like they're pigeonholed into one genre. Do you have any advice for branching out into several genres? Because I know lots of our listeners, you know, they love metal and that's their their main thing. But yeah. They would also love to be doing, you know, country records when they sure. play jazz, like whatever, like, and just expand to so that they can you know, do this as full-time as possible and not just rely on one genre. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a tough one because I think I'm a little bit of an introvert. So I think if I had to rely on myself going out and getting my own work, which is what I'm trying to say is the studio kind of brings in all these different projects, all these different producers, right? So I kind of, you know, they happen to hear something that I mixed or something that I work on and they're like, well, you know, maybe Dan could do this. So I, I've been lucky enough to get really super different, you know, projects, everything from like these United States, which are like kind of like a Fleetwood Mac-y thing to, you know, to something super heavy to like just doing some Fetty Wap stuff just because, you know, a rap friend of mine, producer recommended me. And, but as far as, I guess what I would kind of recommend is maybe go find the band that you like that you and maybe mix something of theirs for free. Maybe find a band that you like that's really different than what you're used to doing. And then, you know, see if maybe you can mix their a song for them for free, see what they think. And but that's a tough one. You know, I wish I could give some better advice. Well, I think that that's great advice. Uh, working for free is kind of the way that most people I know got started. Yeah. And when challenged with branching into a new genre, what I feel like people need to understand is that there's a while it's not 100% starting over, especially if you have a studio and years under your belt, you're not starting over in terms of your experience, but what you are is starting over in terms of a market that you have no name in and you kind of got to go back to the beginning in a way and start doing the same kinds of things that you did when you wanted to establish yourself in say metal you have to start doing those same things in say country and try to record people for free socialize do those same exact things and then you should be able to move faster than when you were first starting because you're that much more experienced and hopefully better at your craft. But yeah. but my advice is always to kind of go back to what what did you do when you were first starting to achieve what you have already achieved? Try that. 
Yeah, that and you got to just put in the work. I mean, yeah. that's the, the the real crucial part. It's interesting we are talking about this because I literally just got off a one-on-one session today with a subscriber of ours and he lives in kind of a more remote part of Australia and he was like, all right, you know, I just quit my job. I want to do this for a living. Uh, how do I get clients? So we were just talking about different strategies and different ways he can go out there. And, and one of the things I told him that's really important is not just walking up to somebody and be like, yo, let me record your band. Let me produce right. or mix your single. You got to build rapport. You have to show genuine interest. You yeah. have to like, you know, understand psychology and things like that. But more importantly than all that stuff is you have to sit down and do it and put in the damn hours and the work necessary. And it's a couple hours a day. You should be working on growing your customer base and focusing. He's like, well, I got 12 hours. And I'm like, okay, spend four hours a day practicing mixing, four hours a day learning about it. And then four hours a day working on marketing and going out and trying to actually meet people in that work and get gigs. And then there'll be a point where that balance, it changes where you're spending more time mixing, less time learning and hardly any time networking because you're so damn booked and you're so busy, you can barely keep up. I wonder if someone actually did that six days a week, like say they had six months and to six months to do this, make it happen. And they actually were disciplined, like you just recommended four hours a day of learning about it, four hours a day of practicing, four hours a day of career growth. I'm sure that almost anyone listening to this podcast could at least get some sort of a client base if they actually followed through with it um, in a disciplined way and didn't totally suck. Yeah, you just got to put in the work, period. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And not suck, but you got to have the talent, obviously. But you know what I mean? You got to put in the work. I, I agree with what Joel said, because the work, it's its a lot of work. I mean, it's, you know, we spend, we de- dedicate our lives to this. This is, you know, this, you know, it's, you're a slave. But when you have a studio like this, people are like, ooh, you know, you have this, you know, studio. And it's just, I'm a slave to the studio. I fix it when it breaks. It Stuff breaks all the time. You know, you're never off. You Your phone rings constantly, you know, and I sometimes have a hard time finding a ba- balance. I think Joel is better than I am. I think I, at least I don't, you, 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 you haven't I don't know talked to my wife. Yeah. So okay. See, I don't know if you still are, but <laughs> you know, you're answering the phone all through the night. You're sending texts, you're messaging, you're trying to keep everyone happy. You're you describing know. me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just the same life. Yeah. There's. <laughs> There's no way to survive in this business if you want to if you want to have a nice life, you want to have a house and nice things, you know, or you know, keep yourself fed basically. How many kids uh, do you have, Dan? Two. Okay, yeah. uh, I got three now. So I mean, <laughs> kids are expensive, you know. Very they cost expensive. a lot of money, and yes. it's like it doesn't go away. It's like a mortgage. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can't it's just crazy. like yeah, I can pay that bill next week. It's like nope. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's very hard, and you know, and people they don't they're like. Oh well, you know, you're 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 made it, you're here, and they're like, I do the same thing every day that I did 20 years ago, but I just have way more responsibilities. There's no difference really. I mean, I work just as hard, probably harder. It's just now, you know, we have more responsibilities and more on the line. So it never gets easy. Unless maybe if you get to the point of somewhere like I don't think it ever gets easy. Even the most successful people I, I know in the world. Easy. Yeah, would the it mo- be worth it though if it was too easy? No, no, it wouldn't because I'd be bored as can be, and you know, if I'm not stressing, biting my fingernails, you know, like, you know, I mean, I put on the act for people, as I'm sure you do. It's like everything's cool, you know. I think that's kind of my my when I'm in the studio, I'm pretty mellow, you know. Yeah, but inside, I'm not all that mellow. You know, at, I think there's a misconception about 
what it's like at the higher levels. And I don't think it gets easier. Okay, so you have nicer amenities, right? right. Maybe a bigger paycheck. Right. And, the, and I don't think those things are superficial. Like, I think that there's a mindset that you can get in that's very positive if things like that are taken care of, like, because you don't have to worry about them so much anymore. And it, it's nice to be taken care of. But when it comes down to it, the pressure at the top is way, way more intense than at the bottom. Like you're dealing with millions of dollars and in multinational corporations. Uh, that is a level of pressure that the bottom can't even fathom. And then when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, you strip everything else out of there. You're still recording or writing or mixing a track in a studio. Yep. with an artist or for an artist and you still have to deliver the goods like there's no way out of that and that doesn't get easier no. it's exponentially harder it's yeah. harder it's way harder right i mean perfect example is you know and i'm not really a hip-hop guy i don't do a lot but a friend of mine happens to manage road manage fetty wap and i i'm developing this younger kid who just got to deal with Atlantic. His name's Liam Liss, young 14-year-old kid, but he's actually very talented. Fetty Wap did a track with him. So then I ended up doing some stuff with Fetty. And then I got his last tour ready for him as far as like in, in, intros, interludes, just make sure everything's right. But And his, now his new tour, but that's such a high level that you know, he's, you know, he's got like a billion streams, whatever it is. It's crazy, you know? It's insane. Um, it's insane. And that, you know, and his manager's tough. It's when you're at that level. And honestly, I don't make that much more for that than I do for a lot of things. People think, oh, you know, uh, you know, oh, you're working with Fetty Wap. You could basically retire. No, <laughs> not even close, <laughs> you know? So you tell me you're accepting donations. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely accepting donations. I will absolutely take donations, Kickstarter, whatever you have. But it definitely on that level, there's a, there's a certain like, you know, the manager will call you all night long we need this, we need this version, we need this thing, and we need this thing. And you really have to deliver and you can't say no, you can't say, so it's it's definitely, you're right, you have to deliver. And, and when that deadline is set, it has to be there. I mean, they have a tour, they're going, you know, Jones Beach, him and, you know, a bunch of other bands, it needs to be there. Yeah, there, there's no, people are not playing at that level. No. You're dealing, even though you might not be the one making extreme amounts of money, there are extreme amounts of money on the line. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, that's, uh, I, I definitely think that people getting into this need to understand that the pressure only increases as you go higher. And that's why, actually, we were talking about this yesterday, but there are some guys who make a living off of local only clients who do very well, make lots of cool records and make a good living for themselves without ever going to the national or international level. And that's perfectly fine for them. Lower pressure, still decent money and still a good time. I mean, actually, in some ways, it's kind of a great scenario. I mean, right? You get to work. It with, really is. It really is. I mean, when like, you're there and you're looking upward, it seems like it's not as cool, but when you're upward and you're looking back downward, you're kind of like, man, I remember when it was easy to get paid. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The big, right, Joel, the bigger artists you work with, you know, getting paid becomes more difficult. Um, Nine months later. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, I think that's actually a great career. If you're happy with that, 
you know, but people always like, well, what do you, you know, don't you want to work with Metallica? I don't know, honestly, <laughs> you know, I mean, quite honestly, you know, I mean, I mean, that that's just an example. That's a lot of everything, you know, that's, you're definitely, you know, you're working with them and, you know, it's a big record. I only using them as an example, you know, but that's a lot of, it's a lot of time away from your family. It's a lot of, that's, a, that's, that's a big commitment. Definitely. Yeah. So, a long commitment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That could be a two year commitment to get drums. Totally. <laughs> so, so we've, got some, we've got some questions here from our crowd for you that I'd like to ask you. Yep. The first one is from Rodney and that is. Could you describe the vocal tuning process for Framing Hanley? Ah, sure. You know, Nixon is a is a really good singer. I used a uh, Waves tune, not Melodyne. I go back and forth between the two. I think I think Waves tune could kind of tweak out the system sometimes a little bit more, but I, I like the way it sounds a little bit better. But uh, with Nixon, we would do. Oh, let me talk about the recording real quick. We would do, you know, a bunch of takes and then we would kind of narrow down parts that we thought we had to fix and work on. But there's not a ton of tuning on his vocals. There'll be more tuning on the backing vocals on the harmonies, but not a ton of tuning on the lead vocals. But I would use I would use Waves tune. All right. Hunter Driscoll is asking, were there ever any moments where you thought about giving up? And if so, what got you through those moments? You know, I'm, if I thought about giving up, it was for, for maybe point one seconds. I'm not, I just don't, I'm not that type of guy, but it gets very difficult. You know, it gets very, very, very difficult. But to me, I have too much, I don't know what the right word is because I don't want to sound like an asshole. I have like, I never want to give up. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll fight, fight, fight and fight. And there are probably things that are easier, but I don't know. My brother's a doctor and, you know, he stresses out more than I do. And, you know, and it's very difficult. I'm sure he has the same thoughts about, wow, this is really difficult. But I mean, compared to other things, is, is this really that difficult? Probably not, you know? That's a good perspective. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, people's actual lives are not on the line. Right, right. I mean, my brother never sleeps, you know, works, you know, seven days a week. He's gray already, you know. Sounds like uh, recording. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's actually very similar. <laughs> Gary's asking, how do you figure out what piece of outboard gear you're going to use on any given project? I know the question may sound like a no-brainer, but you have more gear than anyone I've ever worked with. Right. I mean, so... Okay, so we'll narrow a few things down to try to keep this simple. If I'm doing a guitar... I'm usually going to reach for something that's a little thick, like, you know, thick in the low mids type of thing. So for me, I'll either use my Chandler uh, preamps or my API preamps because I think the APRs are a little faster. I think the Chandlers are a little more nevish, but the Chandlers have this uh, thick switch in them that really does something really good on, on like the low mids. But from doing this for so long, you kind of have that thing like this singer's voice is a little thin, so I need something to thicken it up a little bit. Or this guy's got a lot of bottom on his voice. I need to use something that'll thin it out a little bit. So it's kind of just listening first to the instrument and then picking the preamp or picking the compressor. So it's kind of you listen a little a little bit first, especially the singer. But you know, sometimes you already know the singer because you listen to their previous records. 
And I don't usually play things safe. Like I, I usually, usually don't say, well, let's just get it. I usually, let's just get it clean to tape. I usually try to get a vibe going, but there are certain things that we all reach for, you know, 1176 is for vocals. Summit. You know, summit. Overheads. Oh, well, the summit is, if you don't have a summit on overheads, you just can't make a record. Right? Or, <laughs> or, or for your talkback mic, right? <laughs> <laughs> we actually do like the summit. I should just say it's a yeah. really excellent compressor. But no, it's a it long is. story, it's funny. And a good joke. Yeah. So, what is the uh, summit story? Oh shit! Uh, do we want to go there, Dan? Sure. I, I can probably do the short version. All right. <laughs> this has kind of become infamous around here, at least. Um, so, I went to work with Dan several years ago. And um, I had seen, I forgot who the producer, very famous guy, he did uh, like an Alice in Chains record and it was a, like a mixed magazine ad. It was like just surrounded by walls of Summit gear, like <laughs> exclusively used Summit tube gear on every record, blah, blah, blah. And there's a dude standing there and I'm like, huh. So I remember seeing that ad and I'd never seen a Summit in action. Yeah. And I'm going through Dan's exhaustive racks of just amazing gear. And I'm like, yo, Dan, what's up with this Summit? And he's just like, oh, dude, it's really sick. And I'm like, <laughs> what's it good on? And, you know, this is kind of like when I just yeah. met Dan, so he didn't realize what a sarcastic, like, goofball I am. I have a very ridiculous sense of humor. I say a lot of things that are just absurd because it's, I think it's funny. Yeah. And uh, either, you know, either you get it or you don't. So, and, and he's just like, well, and he couldn't think of anything. He was like, yeah. I like it on overhead sometimes. And I'm like, so yeah. it's fucking garbage. So it sucks, right? And then Dan got it right away. Like he got the sense of humor. Yeah. He just started laughing. And because, you know, like the fucking worst compressor is the one you throw on overhead. Yeah, you throw like, on your overhead. Shit, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was, dude, it was so funny. So for the whole week, I just trolled the fuck out of this piece of gear. It was, it just became like a whole fiasco, like the band was in on it. And it's like, great. You it still, was, you're was, still doing it. Yeah, I'm still, still doing messaging it. And, me. And it never gets old. So this is the real rub though. Like the SSL blows out on the second last day that we're there, like the third last day, the tech comes in and I'm kind of just bullshitting with the tech and, you know, we're talking about whatever. And then Dan walks in the room. And I'm just like, you know what, Dan? And I just said this in a straight face because the tech has no idea what the hell is going on. And he's just kind of not paying attention. And I'm like, Dan, you know, I bring my band all the way out here from Chicago. We come in your studio. I bring you this nice budget. And I walk into the studio and I see a fucking summit. Yeah. I'm like, you get this fucking piece of shit out of this studio. And I said, I said this like stone cold with like anger and hatred in my voice. And I was like, you train that fucking thing to the back of your truck and run it down the hill. I'm not going to let you fucking fuck this record up by putting that piece of shit. In. And like, I started laying into this dad just fucking lost his stack. And I, I was trying to keep a straight face and the guy just stands up. He's like, Oh, he like, yeah. had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Like, you, you don't like Summit either? Right, right, like, right, yeah. And we, Dan Jeff. and I, like, in chorus, we're like, dude, it's fucking garbage. And he's like, oh, man, I used it back in the 80s on yeah, uh, yeah. drums, and I didn't like it that much, and we fucking lost it. Holy yeah. shit. So, it, you know, that only exacerbated the situation. In the last day, the vocalist, you know, he, he had to punch something in because, I don't know, he, he just spent too much time at the bar, and he was doing a shitty job. And he gets in the booth, and I'm, like, screaming at him because he's singing, like, absolutely a one out of ten. And, uh... Dan puts him through the 1176 purple and I'm like, dude, it fucking doesn't sound right. Like it's too bright. And, and he goes, I know. And he goes and he plugs it into the summit and that thing sounded fucking awesome. And I was just like, bastard. Yeah, know. <laughs> you know what the summit does really well? Just to, and I hate to even say it in front of Joel, you could put a shit ton of compression on something and it's really, it, it, it won't sound like beat up and super compressed. 
it's pretty transparent for that, but you can get like a ton of compression. Like if someone's like all over the place on their vocals, you can get a ton of compression and it's so easy to use. It's two knobs. You know what I mean? It's like you got fast, medium, uh, and slow attack. They got a fucking garbage button on there too. Or yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> it's well, funny. I'm looking more, at, I'm looking at these things right now. One more caveat on that story. I had a producer then fly in from LA who pretty big guy. He, he had co-ownership in the Sonic ranch in Texas, which is a really incredible studio. Yeah, it's a crazy studio. And, um, his name is Steven short. He's recently passed away. He came up and like the first you know, to produce a record and he sat down in my studio and we started talking about gear. And the first thing he says, like, man, I really like Summit compressors, dude. I fucking lost it. I turned around and I just told him the whole story. I mean, at first thing I was like, fuck the Summit, that thing's a piece of shit. And he was just like, (laughs) but then he got it right away. He saw that I was joking. And then, you know, so we started joking about it. So bastard, like a week later, he sends me a picture of a a refrigerator at the studio and he took the Summit out of the rack and it was just sitting in the fridge. And I just texted him back. I'm like, dude, why is the Summit in the fridge when it clearly belongs in the motherfucking garbage? And it just, I don't know. It was just out of control. So summits going to be after you, Joel. They're going to be, they're going to put a hit on on you. You know how many summits I just sold? Probably like none. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, people are going to be returning them. The, uh, (laughs) you actually have only used it once though. I've, I've a couple of times, I think. I don't know. Who knows? And did it rule both times? Yeah, it was. It was. They fantastic. are really it, good. Yeah, it's a great piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah. But it's just all because of that article I saw that ad with the dude who did Allison Chains because he had a whole rack of it and it's just like I use nothing but Summit. Yeah. Just like, I don't know. It just it it, it, be, it was fun. It was just having a great time. You know, so. sometimes Joel, it's funny when I'm using the Summit. Sometimes I think of you and I'm like, does this fucking thing suck? You know, like, really, I'm not even kidding. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be using this. Oh, that's amazing. Now yeah, I want to try one. Oh, dude, it was just so absurd. It, it was great. That was just a really, really fun time. I mean, you got, you know, when you're making a record, there's a lot of pressure and you obviously yeah. want it to be the best. And I've always believed in trying to have as much fun with the band as you possibly can, because, hey, you know, if they enjoy spending time with you, it's like they're paying to hang out with you. Then yeah. they're going to come back to you. Yeah. And they'll probably come back to you multiple times. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it increases their lifetime value if you want to talk nerdy marketing terms. No, I, I agree because, you know, hanging is is really sometimes I wish I, I was I'm a bet. I was a better hanger. Some guys I know, man, they're just so, you know, they're they're a good hang. Like they drink and they go and this. I try to be super fun in the studio, but I'm not like a go hang and mingle. I probably should be more, you know, I'm, I'm always getting shit about that, but don't tell your wife you said, yeah, that. yeah, I know. She, you know, she's, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the hang and mingle. I used to, I'm over it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. You know, my, my wife says, yeah, you should go. And, you know, luckily like I said, luckily I have the studio that brings me people over and over again, because, you know, I think the studio's name is bigger than mine, which is, which is kind of well, whatever, you know, it's fine, you know? Well, here's the formula, right? Hang and mingle in the beginning of your career because you have to build rapport and relations yep. and repeat clientele. As you get bigger and you get more and more credits, your name is going to do its work for itself right. and bring you clients. And you have to do less hanging and mingling because there's no damn time because you have too many tracks to work. You got to work. Yeah. That's why I always tell people I'm working. <laughs> like, did you hear this, 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 and this band? I'm like, fuck, you know, I'm usually <laughs> mixing or working on something, but then I usually have to go out and listen to it or, you know, but I don't know, Joel, you seem pretty busy. I think we're well, in the same, same boat. You gotta, you gotta have it, keep at it. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's a, a, a taker's world. You gotta go out and 
if you want to do something and you believe in it and you got to go do the work and you got to go get it. And if you do that, you get to live and enjoy the good life and all the perks, like, you know, seven day a week, 16 hour days and yes. uh, no life, um, <laughs> yeah. and no fun. Right. But at least you get to make cool records and right. occasionally yeah. people download them illegally. just went on vacation for two months. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty right. neat, Joe. I got to tell you, I was jealous. <laughs> You know what? You'd be surprised, though. The irony of that vacation is it actually cost me less money to go there because of daycare and all that stuff to go yeah, there and spend I two months it. and take two separate vacations while I was on actual vacation than it was to stay at home and grind it out. So daycare, that's that's got to be a killer not to get out, you know, get sidetracked. But, you know, dude, it's over like 30 grand a year. No, but it's that's crazy. Oh, fucking sucks. But you know, you just gotta you gotta enjoy life. Gotta I look keep at it this getting way. that making that big mix money, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I look at it this way: I can always make more money, but I can't get more health. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, uh, right. I, I I can at least walk now, sort of, and like move and breathe and talk, kind of. So I might nah. as well go see and do stuff while I can do that before I'm in a wheelchair with gray hair because I mix too many records. No, it's awesome. I mean, that's so really. Year awesome that you were able to do that because you probably come back a little, you know, a little refreshed. Yeah, it, it definitely helps. Except now I have an avalanche of shit to get yeah. through and I'm, I'm back to where I was before I left. Yeah, I believe it. Everyone's, <laughs> everyone's yelling at you and, you know, where's yeah, this? Yeah, everybody's where's... pissed. And, but the thing is now I don't care because I just came back and I'm all relaxed and I'm just like, oh, it's all right. I'll get, I'll get it done. It's coming. Chill out. It's not that big of a deal. I wanted to ask you because it's, you know, you got to kind of how do you deal with, I've been doing this for a long time, dealing with it. You know, it's like, you can only get things done so fast, you know, it's, and, and keep stuff, you know, at a super high quality because I'm, I'm my biggest critic. You know, I can't, I can't just phone something in. It's just not going to happen. You know, I have, yeah. I have my OCD things that I have to do in every mix, just an OCD thing. I need stuff to look organized. I need stuff to be organized. I need to, I need to know that I went through everything. It's just kind of, and I don't know, you know, sometimes it might be better or worse. I'm not sure, but it's just what I do. Like I just, I'm not a fast mixer. I think you're a fast mixer, right? Yeah. Um, I mix yeah. Joel's oh, insanely fast. Yeah. I mix I, upward of about 500 tracks a year when I yeah. want to take on that much work. So you, uh, I've got a couple answers to that question, Dan. First off, you need a damn good assistant yeah, who really absolutely. knows his shit. Yep. And then you have to spend a bunch of time refining the actual system. Yep. So when I get a track back from him, it's already, you know, all my shit is already routed. Everything is on. And I literally sometimes just have to write automation. Yeah. And I can whip through a first mix in 30 minutes if we yeah. already have a first song approved on a record. And it's like a metal record or something like that. So there's not a lot of variance. Right. Um, the artsy bands obviously take more because they get all like yeah, wussy yeah. about all yeah, that shit. Like, exactly. dude, my ghost notes and my snare need to yeah. be 17 dB higher. Well, fucking play them better next yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I know. We no, don't have any I more agree. money. Yeah. So you know what? You know that kind of bullshit. But so I get a lot of those bands. Yeah. That's a big part of it for me is just really having an organized system. But the other thing is, at some point in my career, I feel like I learned to really live 80-20. And I realized I can spend three days on the sickest drum sound in the world, but if I send the first mix to the band and they're like, it's garbage, dude. Like, that's not yeah, what we wanted at all. I, I just wasted three days. I know. So I literally try to get the first mix done as fast as I possibly can and go like Chris Lord Algae on that, send yep. it over to the band and then just see either I'm on, I'm, yep. I, ha I, need, I have work to do or I'm way off and I need to completely rethink my process. Yeah. And from that initial feedback, either I've nailed it and then it just needs a little bit of revisions. I mean, on the bigger bands, obviously if I'm doing something like Machine Head, I'm going to sit there and obsess over yeah, every little micro yeah, of hair. of course. Right. But when I'm working on, you know, something that's not that high level. Right. 
it, it's really just about getting it done, making it sound great, you know, something you're going to put your name on, but at the same time, not overthinking it, knowing when to just say, okay, enough is enough, send it to the band because they're going to have an opinion anyways. And it doesn't really matter if the snare drum's a DB brighter or hotter. Right, right. You know, my mom, when she listens to this band, she's either going to be like, this song is good or it's no. shit. And being able to like accept that is really difficult. But the day that that happened is the day that my mixing got a lot faster. Yeah. And I don't feel like I sacrificed any quality, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. It's, you know, it really is. It's, it's obviously it's the song, right? I mean, if the song is great, you can almost mix it like shit and it's going to be a great song, right? A lot of times we don't deal with, you know, great songs. I mean, that's, you know, so it's almost like you're, trying to make something sound perfect that's really at least in my head you know that's obviously when you have a great band great like oh for instance the 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 tantric you know you may not like the style whatever the case may be one of the records i did with them i i literally mixed the whole record in a couple days because it was recorded so well the band is all really good players really good players that it was almost it was nothing to mix. It just sounded great. I recorded it, mixed it. That was easy. And I let it go. And the good thing about that was I thought I had a couple of weeks to work on it and I had like a few days. So, <laughs> so it was good me guess. like, really, this has to be done, you know, two or three days. And I just blew it out and it worked. But there's all the times where bands will obsess and obsess and obsess. And I'm, the, I'm sometimes too accommodating. But if I feel that, like I tell bands, if I feel that it's, you're starting to really mess up the stew, mess up the song, I put a stop to it. You know, like, you but I to. will probably go longer than most people will with revisions. You know, you kind of have to these days. It's kind of expected, I think. Yeah, it's like the never ending, you know, it's never, never done, right? I mean, just bands, you know, this, this, they think that, you know, you just load up your session. It's well, because you know, they have pro tools yeah, now, right? right? Don't you so. just call it up? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I feel like, don't you just, can't you just... It can be a real circus. You know, right. something that makes me think of, uh, that, like, that just inspired a thought is, I think a, a key process to mixing quickly, too, is the gut, right? So right. yeah. A lot of your best mixing, I feel, is, like, when you're not thinking about mixing, you're just, like, you throw up the faders, all your shit is edited, tuned, whatever, set up the way you like it, and you just kind of start going with your impulse, and then you get that rough first balance and start writing some automation and the song is feeling good. And at that point, when you're about to become a nitpicky bastard about it, that's usually when I send the band the first mix. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I agree. Because sometimes I've nailed it and it doesn't need anything more. And anything that I'm going to do is actually detrimental. Like I'll spend all this time EQing guitars only to find out that if I took all that damn EQ off and just made one wide cut, it would have, it sound, would have just sounded better. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, it's sometimes, you know, and you deal with I don't want to go on and on and on about this, but sometimes you have a band and it happens in rock bands a lot where you have two or three members that all want to be the leader. Um, so it's like, <laughs> oh, you know man. what I mean? You deal with, I just dealt with that on a project where I'm getting notes and they're the littlest, most ridiculous things, but the band hasn't gotten together on the notes. <laughs> so oh, you, shit. you know what I mean? So it's like, then you have to go to do the whole thing, guys. You got to talk about it with each other, decide on something, consensus with the band, then send your notes to me. But then it's, you know, this guy in the band's fighting with this guy in the band. So they don't want to talk to each other sometimes. And it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's that whole thing. Sometimes you got to be a therapist too. That's where systems come in place because if you establish the ground rules yep. in the beginning, so, because yep. I, I never mix attended, very rarely do I yeah. ever. I say, okay, one guy sends me 
things. I get, pick a point guy for the band and send me notes. If I get a note from anybody else, I'm going to hit delete. I'm not even going to open it because I don't give a shit. Yeah. Yes. Same, that's yeah. awesome. And that saves you so much time because then the band knows not to fucking waste your time because they're going to be like, all right, this guy's really serious. He's really busy. And, you know, it kind of like you have to put a premium on your time and make yep. the band feel like you're doing them sort of a favor. But at the same time, you know, you're obviously trying to give them all you can. But what we're trying to avoid is them wasting unnecessary time because it, it it could just be spent doing so much more things. It's like, guys, I can sit here and read your fucking notes and argue with you back and forth, or I could be spending that time automating one of your songs and making it pop more, or putting more time into being creative. What, what do you want? Yeah, that, I mean, I agree. So that that's that's the thing that I try to, like you do, establish that in the very beginning. And then what happens occasionally, I, and the reason why I'm saying this, because I actually just had it happen like last week, bands will be screaming at each other, management, this and that. And I'll be like, guys, you just got to get your shit together. Send me, I'm saying this shit is getting worse <laughs> and worse and worse. You know, and I end up, I always do my point version, point, point one, point two, point three, point four. So I keep the ones that I like the best, but you know, I'd say one out of every, you know, very few projects this happens, but the reason why I bring this up is because it just happened. And it was really like a nightmare trying to finish, trying to keep the two main guys in the band happy keep the management happy. And it was a good budget. So it was one of those things I was like, you know, that was for a label. So you wanted to keep the label happy, but it was, it was a tough one. Definitely. Well, Dan, thank you so much no for problem. your time. It was super yeah, awesome dude. catching up with you again. Me. Hopefully I wasn't rambling as I did. Oh no, not at all. So where, um, where can people want to check out your stuff? Where can they check it out online? All right. So uh Facebook page is just uh Daniel Malsh producer mixer. That's Daniel, then M-A-L-S-C-H. And then soundmindrecording.com. That's soundmind, M-I-N-E. And then you can check out Soundmind Recording Academy uh, for the schooling. But uh, there's a there's a link on the Soundmind Recording page with some music, a player. Should be pretty updated. Yeah, and we'll make sure to uh, link to this in the show notes as well. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Can I tell you guys what my dream is real quick? So someday... I'm going to have a new studio and I'm going to have a summit in the wall right before I enter the studio, which I will walk in. I will curse at it every day, but it will be hardwired. Yeah, just punch it. Yeah, yeah. Like it'll it'll just take a verbal bashing every day. I'll get all my anger out on it. I'll go into the studio. I'll mix the project, but it will always be hooked up in case yeah. I want to run overheads through it. Yeah, it's good. That's my dream. I'm going to spend like four grand on a compressor just so I can swear at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do it. That's living the life. <laughs> I back your dream. I would, I would probably do that, actually. If I had an extra four grand, I would do it. Oh, why not? I mean, some people like fancy cars and shit like that. I just want to swear at a summit. Yeah, yell at compressor, yeah. And then use it, not tell anybody that I like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's on every, it's on every lead vocal. <laughs> oh, shit. Amazing. Awesome, well, thanks, guys. Dan. So I'll, uh, Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by DrumForge. DrumForge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone. We focus on your originality. DrumForge, it's your sound. Go to drumforge.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.